This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. There's a lot going on. It's going to be tough to hit it all, as a matter of fact. I'm curious, fellas. I'm curious because there's so much. I'm curious what has caught your eye in the world of sports. Come on, let's begin with our uh, horse race conclusion, which last week we had uh, Jeff Cedar on, who gave us some terrific insight into the races, as he always does. And we walked out of there convinced that Maximum Security was one of the four horses that would win this. Well, so let me just say, I wasn't here, so I had to catch up with you guys. I listened to the show afterwards, Mm -hmm. and Jeff is reliably one of my favorite mm-hmm. guests of the year. I, mean, we, I enjoy our guests. I mean, generally we have enjoyable guests, but Jeff, there's something about the the entertainment slash information combination that he brings. So I end up at the end of that segment, I'm like, guys, are we going to put some money on this? Because yeah. every, every now yeah. and then we pool money just actually, for entertainment purposes. He did He did mention that the, the favorite at the time of our show last week had dro- had not yet dropped out, and he said, that guy, that horse isn't going to win. Yeah, and crack, well, cracking its hoof or something. Right. And basically on its unreliability, but it didn't win because it didn't it race. Scratched. And so, so by the way, he ends up naming four horses. Three of them were real long shots, like 30 to 1, 50 to 1. But whenever, then this horse, Maximum Security, at the time of Wednesday, at the time of the show, yeah, it was shot. still a long shot. 30 to 1. 10 to 1, I think. 10 to 1. 10 to 1. Okay. And then the, the lead horse scratches, and so everybody's odds improve a little bit. And by post time, Maximum Security was the favorite. Yes, 9 to 2. Yeah. And it, it ran away with the actual race. Yeah. Now, I don't know much about horse racing. I don't think anybody does. This is a this is an interesting race, a sporting event that 150,000 people come to. What do you think of the uh, interference decision? Well, the thing is, I have no basis of making an, an, yeah, an opinion I guess we on don't it. Have but did you, do, here, did you even know such a thing No, existed? No, I didn't. I didn't either. No. So, but I do have, so, here's, so let's just look at this as an empiricist. It's never happened in a Kentucky Derby. The, the, it has happened, but not to the lead not horse. Not to the lead horse. No. So if you think about it. There's been over 100 of these, probably well more than 100 of these Kentucky Derby races. But they didn't races. always have slow motion. They didn't always yeah. have slow motion instant replay. And so that, 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 of course, has to be factored. I did learn some interesting, that they took a long time to do this. And oh, once yeah. they took a long 22 time, 22 minutes, they were sunk and had to call it. But if they had simply just looked at it and go, yeah, well, whatever, a lot of yeah. mud, move on, I think no one really would have cared. Or no, that makes it interesting because I think technically the horse, no question, had did it. violated yeah. the rules or the rider, whoever you want to blame. But then the question is, okay, look. The horse that came in second was not interfered with. I mean, just minimally. No. And the horse that won won by almost two lengths. And so you're kind of you're basically it's a question of spirit of the law versus letter of the yeah, law. That's right. And that's why they spent 22 minutes trying to sort it out. And it seems you know really in at the time we I mean we we just won we won this we didn't pay that much but we won our bet. And at the time you know you like I it. had time to buy a round of drinks for all my friends. <laughs> Goddamn! And then the decision came. <laughs> it was great. It was great. But, you know, the thing is, for me, what's interesting about it, and this is where I, where I 
if, if this was a close call, shouldn't you make these calls in the direction of what's best for the sport? And unquestionably, this was a disaster for the sport. Disaster is a big story. Well, I mean, this story is not doing well. It's great to have a... a and it, 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 it creates this precedence. It's kind of like now in, in, in football, and I, I, it's unavoidable because we now have instant replay in football as well. Every time there's a big play, like a touchdown or whatever like that, you can't get instantly excited. Because you have to be like, review. is there a flag? Yeah, th- and, then, and then you're like, oh, if there's not a flag, I can get instantly excited. And now that they're changing probably the rules in the future where, you know, you can... Ch- you know, challenge things like penalties. We'll have even more of that in football. Yeah, no, and this is basically what's happened okay, to all so the sports. I, I can agree replay. that it's not that it's bad well, for the sport. Think but, about but, the next but, two big events. So much of our enthusiasm has to do with pushing forward the winner of the previous race into the next and watching what happens because of the only thing really we know about is my enthusiasm count. for these well, next couple I mean, races. I have to say, we're probably barely going to cover the Preakness and certainly not the Belmont Stakes, uh, undoubtedly. But but Adi, you you set us up on, intentionally, I assume, with your first statement, which is when well, it's a close call. Yes. And in, in this case, it turns out this just wasn't close. I mean, even a rube like me can look at this thing and say, yeah, he went from the two slot to the four or five and abruptly stopped two horses. That And if that's I didn't know that was... We're watching it real time, guys. You don't one of our other, No, no. One of our, one of our other horses was Long Range Toddy, mm-hmm. which was the third horse out and was full-on bumped and stopped. And watching it real time, I'm like, whoa, what happened to Long Range Toddy? But I just kind of thought that happened in horse racing. I didn't yeah, know you yeah. couldn't do it. But if you're going to say that that's the rule, there's unambiguous that 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 the horse moved and stopped these other two. So it it wasn't close in the end. It really wasn't close. Even if it is bad for the sport, it wasn't close. That's the rule. That's the rule. And one thing that I'm curious about is to what extent was that jockey era? So he said even on the horse, you know, 30 seconds after the race, he said, well, you know, he startled whenever he came around the corner and the and the crowd came up. But does that, I mean, was it really that unusual a startle? I, I have no idea. Was he responsible? I hope he wasn't responsible. I hope any jockey that would have happened to him because he has to feel terrible. Yeah. No idea how much control a jockey has over a horse at that speed in those environments. I have no Or no how sense. unexpected yeah. that kind of move yeah. is. You know, you're riding along and you're doing one thing and all of a sudden the horse lurches to the yeah. right. I mean, anyway, so that was, that was a rough. Well, we were upset because we don't very, we don't often take money ball information and put it skin in the game. Doesn't happen too frequently. So we do it for it's, it's fun to pool like that, and, yeah. and, and I was looking forward to having a little extra, little cash sitting over here, yeah. you know, so we could just in our Venmo account put, right. put it in for um, the next time. But okay, so that was horse racing. There's other stuff going on. What else is what else? So I have to say, guys, I you know we don't talk about soccer much, but I, I was at dinner last night with three Liverpool, mad, I mean crazy Liverpool fans. And yeah. The Champions League semi. Yesterday, Were you in England? Is it? Where? No. <laughs> so it turns out. I mean, even they our were producer, Barcelona, right? Yeah, Matty Datz is a big Liverpool guy. So the Liverpool. I don't know whether it's an academic thing or a Philadelphia thing, but there's a lot of folks floating around here. And three of my closest buddies are big Liverpool people. And late yesterday, everybody hadn't worried about this match because here's the setup: Champions League. This is the top, you know, two four teams from all the European leagues. They're, they're whittled down to the semis now. So, And the way the setup is in the knockout rounds, it's it's unusual for a non-soccer fan because it involves two legs. One match at one team's home pitch or whatever they call it. Second match at the other one. So it's home and home. And, and it's, it's cumulative and it's, score. It's cumulative score differential, yeah. which is so weird. But once you get used to it, it's fine. So the thing is, 
Liverpool's in the semis against Barcelona, and they they lose three nil in Barcelona, and so now they go back to they go back to Adfield or whatever it's called Anfield. I'm I'm butchering this. I'm sorry. They go back to Liverpool, their home their home field. They have to win by four because the tie is broken by giving it to the team who won the most who scored the most goals on on uh, on the visiting pitch. Right, so I don't know how they're going to break it if they both score three. But anyway, they need four. They need four to win this thing. But the thing is, as a non-soccer fan, a couple of things that, are, that I learned recently is that Champions League and the and the English Premier League are going on at the same time. Right? Yeah, this is weird. It's like the World Series happening at the same time as the regular season going on. Yeah, yeah. and that's one thing that's kind of odd. The other thing is, is that Man City is not even in the champion. They've been eliminated. Right? They were in it. They, they were in it. They're yeah. out. So, so I guess Liverpool and some other schlubby team is still in the championship. Is schlubby, it I don't know. Whatever. If I never heard of them, right? I've no, heard no, of Man no. City. I've heard of Liverpool. They're one of the big six. They're one whatever. of the big six. Yeah. Okay. Um, they're still going, but Man City, which is of course the best team, in fact, epically good. That's I understand. Yeah, this is they're they're uh, challenging all time record points in EPL up up around upper nineties, and I think even Man well, City is is. I mean, uh, Liverpool is is Liverpool's having a great season. One of the all time best, if not for Man City, for, in front of them. But the weird thing about this season is that Manchester City has is so stacked. They just kind of flat. These supposed they have rules, two, they fair, have, fair play rules. Yeah. They're so stacked that they were the preseason favorite was just absurd. I mean, it was so, they were the odds on like way odds on favorite to win a thirty team division or league. Wait, uh, tell me a little bit more about these fair play rules. Like, because it's it's, uh, it's like a super soft cheat. cap. It's an uncapped. You're right. It's an uncapped <laughs> oh, situation. But like, it's just sort of like if they're flaunting them, there must be they not much. Them, they're they're buying. They're That's buying all too. the they, they pay them in other ways. They figure out other ways to get them money. Oh, I see. Ah, so I'm, I'm far. They really haven't thought that through over there, have they? <laughs> the other it's thing, like the Patriots, they learned from Belichick. Right? They, yeah. Okay, that's, to, that's cool. That's cool. So the other okay, thing, hold on, hold on. We're skipping past this thing. So they I'm need, going, they need to win four yeah. friggin' nil or five one odds of that or what? against yeah. Barcelona, which is I don't know one of the top three teams in the also in the world. Stacked. So they go out in a fair sense, and they won four nil. Yeah, oh. It's just absolutely unbelievable yeah. that, they, that they that they did that they did this, and so they're they're advancing to Champions League final. And one of the this is all the more piquant because they're about to lose the Premier League after having been ahead of it, you know, almost all season. But there's been this slow, inexorable climb by Man City to, to clip them, and they're going to clip them here at the very end unless something very surprising happens on Saturday. No, Man City is doing this by winning, as opposed to Liverpool, which is tying. Well, well, whatever. They're one, which, they're, is, which is three times as I mean, one or three. One, one point difference. One. They must have yeah. done pretty similar things. The point is that Liverpool jumped out early, and Man City has been has been behind since, even though they were clearly the well, favorite team. Actually, let's just push this a little bit. I mean, maybe Matty Dats will give us some information, but. I don't believe Liverpool has lost more than once, and so they've lost only once. And thank you. And uh, and Man City has got has almost no ties. They've lo- they've lost a bunch. So this is almost a very different performance on the field. I don't know. It's it's almost You're talking about like more points. volatility or yeah, something like that I mean, versus yeah, like yeah. It's, it's like one thing. I don't know that much about soccer, but it seems like you can play for a tie. If you really press it, if you score one, you're each at one. You can, you can. I don't know anything about soccer. Yeah, you could definitely play for yeah, a tie. Right? Right. It seems like they usually do, and it seems like that's the that's the modal outcome. And it's it's almost as if Man City is saying we're not yeah. doing that, and we'll take some losses, so but we'll get a lot of wins. It's a little bit exaggerated. They play everybody else. They play everybody else twice, right? So how many matches is that? This is a this is like. 40 total? 38 matches. So there's 20-team 20, 20 league, and so they're playing everyone twice. So 38 matches. Here's the difference in records. Man City, four losses and two draws. 
Liverpool one loss and seven draws. So there's a difference there, but I'm, I'm whatever. I'm not the the, well, the, 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 the head to head. What happened between those two? That'd be interesting. I mean, I know it's only two games. Yeah, a tie and a loss. Man City won, and they drew, and they drew once. And and one of those one of those was decided by just like inches, not even inches. And so this yeah. is the thing. So what, the, I can tell you the psychology of the Liverpool season has been. They jumped up early kind of surprisingly because Man City was such a big favorite. I mean, like overwhelmingly, ridiculously favorite. They jumped up early, and then there's this slow, slow, you know, chipping away at this thing. And, and, and here at the end, they've just needed Man City. Liverpool's had to hold on, but then they've needed Man City to take a loss or a draw. For weeks, they've needed this thing. And so it's just this weird experience. So at the very end, they're going to get clipped. And because they had a game, they had a game in hand or something. So, so they're going to get clipped at the end. And in the in the middle of this thing happening, that's been happening all season. They're doing the championship. Yeah, and they they go in and they go down three nil in the first leg, and then they beat Barcelona shockingly yesterday. And so if you go watch the the the, the all this stuff that's happening in the stadium afterwards, people call it the the greatest night ever at Anfield. So this yeah. is it's just great fun. And now, but now they have to go play the championship against the winner tonight, tonight or this afternoon, Ajax and Tottenham. And the winner of that's going to play, they're going to play this in Madrid in early And this June, like is the June second one. leg of Ajax Tottenham. This is the second leg of that, yeah. All right, so one question. Which is bigger for, yeah. is it more important to win the, the English Premier League well, or the Champions League? the Champions League, because to get there, you kind of have to have already, I mean, I guess you don't have to have won your league to get into but the Champions League. I think there's a pureness to the league championship. And yeah. I, in talking with these guys, there's no question that they would rather win the league, not least because Liverpool hasn't won it in like 30 I years. Okay. I see. So, so. They, they're, a, they're a storied team with lots of league championships, but they had, they've been in this long drought. And so contrast that with like a Barcelona who, you know, is going to win every other year or more from La Liga. They're, that league championship doesn't mean as much, and they're much more interested in these Champions League. So it does vary. It does push around. Anyway, that mean, look, if we, if we want dramatic sports thing, that win yesterday yeah. by Liverpool against Barcelona, that unexpected 4-0 win at home, no less. I mean, that's fun, fun stuff. So uh, I'll throw out a, an analytical observation made about soccer um, that you can actually, I didn't know this was possible, but you can actually calculate expected number of goals scored and given up based on opportunity. And they work. It works now. This is a huge advance. It's not hugely accurate. In terms of, say, distance between. So, for example, Man City has about the same number of goals actually scored on the field as they actually has predicted, and it's around what's a, 100. What, what's an opportunity here? So I guess every shot gets taken, and they have a probability of it being but a But do they do it based on shots taken versus, like, just sort of zone, like, possession of, like, I think it's zone on shots and stuff taken. Like and okay. so I mean, within a shot, do they condition it for the difficulty and all that kind of that stuff? That is beyond my knowledge. Um, okay. Certainly we would like to have seen them done that, but, but at least it's something, it's something akin to trying to figure out, well, what's the underlying metric? of your performance. This is the big advance in analytics is to strip away the outcome and look at what's underneath it and mm-hmm. make your evaluation based on those underlying components of quality rather than the actual things that matter for the score so because I, they can be noised up. Un- undoubtedly, huge theme and a, and a, and a good lesson. I mean, we should, yeah. all organizations should be trying to do that kind of thing. I think one of the things, I would, I would assert that one of the themes with soccer analytics is that those of us not doing soccer analytics are surprised at how detailed and good soccer 
paralytics is because to us it feels like well what do you got you got some you got a yeah. rare goal you got you got less rare but still rare shots and what else are you going to do well they're actually doing lots of things I mean they're tracking all kinds of things they're tracking passes of course but they're tracking dribbling they're tracking breaking you know stealing the ball how they're, much space is created which now is now they're factor, tracking yeah. space created and yeah. so you, you know some of these depend on data that only teams have. But I think the the lesson for me, every time I go back into soccer analytics, the lesson for me is that they're farther advanced than we think they are. No, they are advanced. And I, but I think that last point is a key one. It, it So much of their information depends on this data, which isn't public. Mm-hmm. And so it's very yeah. hard to talk about it. And there's no public discussion. And I fear that this is happening in the sports like basketball and baseball, which were much more public, because so much of the tracking data is only controlled by the teams. Yeah, though, I mean, so ba- the, basketball and baseball are almost on the progressive end of this, right? right. I mean, I... I I feel like we have a greater sense of what's going on with basketball analytics and baseball analytics because there's more publicness to it. There's more publicness to sort of the, the research yes, that's disseminated. More. There's more publicness to the data. And I, th- I actually view those. I mean, basketball is probably the most progressive on this. Um, well, besides golf and some other, but but of the big kind of team sports, basketball is the most progressive. And I mean, I I, I lament. I I feel like hockey is almost similar to soccer in yeah, the sense secret. that we every time we check in on hockey, we're like, and we we talk to somebody about hockey analytics, we're like, oh, that's really cool. I didn't know they were doing that. Right. And in part, it's because so much of you know the stuff that's discovered or is based on proprietary data, or or it's you know the person who discovered it then ends up being hired by a team, and like you know their their stuff goes from being public to not public. Um, So that's a little bit frustrating. And Mm -hmm. I think maybe... Maybe it just has to mature a bit before it becomes more public. Wharton Moneyball, Cade, Shane, and Adi in here. You guys can jump in, one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. 942 A few more minutes of open lines in this first quarter. NBA basketball, what the heck happened to the Sixers? Well, well they look terrible. I mean, they just look I, – I guess I, I don't follow them as closely as some of you guys well, do. Eric. <laughs> yeah. uh, as, I guess as Eric. Yeah. And Eric would be the right person to talk to about this. Um, but, yeah, they just uh, – I watched almost the entirety of that game last night. I mean, what a terrible game to watch the entirety of. But whatever. I'm surprised you didn't um, give up. I hope by watching you mean you had it all well, in the same kinda, I, I ended up being kind of fascinated by just how bad they were. Yeah, and how distant so, the play was. They, I did not I mean, watch the, last night. The Sixers just, they, they seemed to look like they, they had Lost. no plan at all. They would just kind of huck it down the court. And, you know, line somebody up for a shot that would fail more Miserably. times than all. So I watched the game, on the entirety of yeah. the game on Sunday. And this is a game that they they looked like they should have won and lost it in the last minute. Mm-hmm. And they looked bad. But Toronto looked just <laughs> as bad. They looked bad on Sunday. They looked horrible on Sunday. Yeah. But Toronto also looked bad. I mean, no, I mean, there were stretches of six, seven minutes without a basket, without a point, right. which yeah. is absurd. Late, late in the game, the and, Sixers and, went on this long drought. But the Toronto also was missing right? shot after yeah. shot, and they end up gaming a low-scoring game in the nineties, I think. And 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 the Sixers so I guess lost. Compared but, to the one last night, the Sixers played similarly bad, but the but Toronto Raptors was at home did not. and they you know, did not. Play when I saw the score, I assumed it was kind of one of these. It's, it's the thing that happens in tennis sometimes. If a guy or a woman realizes she's going to lose the set, they kind of coast. At the end to yeah. preserve to preserve their energy for the next mm-hmm. set, mm-hmm. and um, some. I mean, this is I, I think well well established, and this happens in basketball. We're like, ah, we're going to lose by twelve. Let's just you know coast, and we'll lose by twenty five, and it doesn't make any difference. But you're telling me it might actually have been worse than that. Well, I mean, I think they were down by. 
20. I mean, they, they, it, it, was, it wasn't just a lot of points added at the end. I mean, yes, they, they were down fair. It was pretty non-competitive okay. for the entire well, second half. And, you know, what did the Bucks do to the Celtics the night yeah, before? Just, yeah. I mean, so going into that series, we thought that the Bucks had a pretty big advantage. They were The markets mm-hmm. liked them better. But then the Celtics came out strong, and we thought might, maybe this is going to go. But now it's 3-1, and they looked pretty dominant, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay, other side. Um, the, the Rockets, Rockets are in yeah, there. Rockets are making a game, making a series of it. I love it. So now we're gonna go bounce. I think back. I think that's good for my over under from last week. I think yeah. I so was we, we both we both we both picked over on the yeah. We so, had an over under on okay. the number of games the Rockets would win in the remainder of the playoffs. Oh, of the playoffs. Nice. And it was one point five. <laughs> it was one point five. So, so I think so. We're. Now we're down to three game series over there. Presumably yep. that's two in Oakland and one in Houston. Yeah. Um. What 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 odds would you give? Let's let's not look at the markets. What chances would you give the Rockets of, of getting through this thing? Oh, they probably are up at like 40% or something like that. Or that I would high? put them in. Yeah, I think so. 35, 40%, given that, you know, it's. Well, let's it's walk down. it through. If, you, if, if there are even teams, but just on home field advantage, a home court advantage alone. Home court advantage is about uh, 60. 0.58. Yeah, let's yeah. call it 0.6. Oh, really? that, okay. Let's yeah. go 0.6. Well, then I guess point six. I got two it. And two, both, all, every team has one at home. Yeah. So if you simply just immediately just grant them their, their victories yeah. at home, it's 0.6 to. To the to Golden State because yeah, right. they'll finish at home. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, but then you have to figure Golden State has a slightly better chance of winning on the road because they're a slightly better team. Yeah. So it's got to be over sixty. So I'd go with about sixty five percent. Okay, so about two Golden to one. State. Two to one. Two to one. Which feels too high. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> I agree with the logic, but in the end, yeah. it feels a little. You know, well, you know, it's it's these superstar driven teams. I mean, Golden State is a, has a tremendous depth, but it looks like it's Kevin Durant dragging them along. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I mean, Harden is the Rockets. Yeah. By the way, markets have a Golden State minus two fifty. Yeah. The Rockets plus two ten. Uh, the night, the game tonight, game five, five and a half points to Golden State. So if you take the over round out, it looks like they're about two to one. Okay. Well, good logic there. Good logic there. Um, I, psychologically, is there anything going on here? Did you see the love my boy PJ Tucker's getting? We I tweeted this thing around yesterday. He's a you know, it's a kind of a sixth man, not quite a sixth man. He's he's he, but he's not a highly praised guy, and yet he's playing this vital role for the Rockets. A little mm-hmm. bit Battier esque in that he's a you know like a fifth man for the Rockets, and he ends up playing this hugely valuable role. He was he was at the time and, and since been my favorite all time Longhorn basketball player to watch. He's just one of these guys who you just was just efficient with the ball. He got things. He's always a little bit undersized, but incredibly effective. He was the Big Twelve Player of the Year. You know, his last year got bounced out of the NBA early, went and played overseas for a while, got a late shot to play in the NBA and has made it work. And now he's been now he's 12 years out of college wow. and he's playing this vital role. He gets to guard Durant against the, when they were playing the Warriors. Anyway, this is the kind of stuff the more he finds. These are the yeah. pieces the more he puts together. It's one of the reasons it's fun to pull for those. Who would you rather pull for? A team who has P.J. Tucker as the fourth guy or a team who has friggin', you know. All the all the other people, <laughs> yeah. Clay, Clay Thompson's Thompson. the fifth yeah. guy, or you know some other some other folks. They got all stars all the way down their roster. Okay, guys, did you know? I mean, I'm mad. I just learned when I walked in here today. There was playoff game seven overtime in hockey last night, and there is I would assert there's nothing better in sports. In there should be alert. Overtime. We should all have friggin' apps on our phone that whenever playoff. A seventh game in the playoff goes to overtime. People need to stop what they're doing and get to a TV. I mean, it's just unbelievable the the, the, the intensity that ratchets up at that point. So this is Blue Stars. Yeah. This is the Western Semis. Mm-hmm. 
and they go they go to they go one one into second overtime, and the Blues end up about five minutes in getting a goal. Which is, I, I think, a great outcome to be honest. I mean, the St. Louis Blues are this like storied franchise that's been around forever and has never won the Stanley. They're Cup. more storied than the Columbus something something. Columbus and, Blue Jackets, yeah, yeah. They're more Blue storied Jackets. than the Carolina yeah. something something. The Carolina Hurricanes, yes. Okay. Yeah. No, uh-huh. there's uh, right. They are. Canada, they, they are. I mean, San Jose actually, Sharks? Even more than the San Jose Sharks? I think they were like the first expansion team. I, maybe I'm wrong about that. Are they the only well, storied so, team outside of the Northeast or Canada? Um, Who else counts? The Kings do because Gretzky had a run. Yeah, so, okay. So, Kings will we'll count as storied. Um that may be Capitals? Hit. I mean, does Capitals count as the Northeast? No. Uh, you know, you guys are just yes, enjoying yourselves here, but let me ask a simple what, question. But what about like the Midwest, like the Chicago's and Detroit's uh, of the world? Yeah, right? the Wings, the Wings and the Blackhawks. Chicago Blackhawks, destroys yeah, the world? For, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, the Dallas Stars, I would count no. as story, only because of the Minnesota North Stars tradition that led up to the Dallas Stars. The, but they Minnesota, used to be a story. The Minnesota North Stars were a story club? Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, oh, storied yeah. for what? Well, back in the '80s, they were one of the best teams out Does there. Does '80s count as storied? <laughs> I mean, to this to this forty three year old, it does. Yeah, I mean that was that was the golden age of hockey, people. I mean, as a Calgary Flames fan, you're yeah. the only person Gretzky alive right now who thinks the Minnesota North Stars are storied NHL franchise. That's not true. That's not true. There's Before this be, conversation, oh my goodness, there's going to be a wealth of Minnesota North Stars fans <laughs> tweeting, at, tweeting at you about this. Okay, so we got the Blues. We've, now we, yeah. we just learned that Shane has a favorite North American, I mean, a U.S. hockey club. I mean, your team's out. The Flames are out. Well, my, no, it's, it's my, the Blues are my favorite team of the teams that are remaining in the playoffs. They're the ones I'm pulling for. Well, you need a team in the West because you're from the West. Yeah, and that's right. No one's ever interested in the West. And here, that's and all of a sudden. Sad but true. Yeah. Well, the the Wings, you know, the Wings and the Hawks are, yeah. are legit old school teams. And the Flames Oilers back 30, 40 oh, years give us ago. a Canadian team, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the Bruins made it through. The Bruins made it through. I, I Which I, you know, I, I, and the Bruins are probably, I would guess, like, you know, in some kind of power ranking sense, the favorites for the rest of, okay. of, of the remaining teams. Okay. Um, Which means really absolutely strong. nothing, apparently, in that hockey. That does mean very little in hockey. So, mm-hmm. you know, give, give, give them 51 to 49 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, listen, the, the Bruins are plus 170 right now. Surprising, I yeah. think, if, considering how random it is. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a little surprised by, the, you know, that any any team would be like that, and given how random city? hockey is. Boston. No. <laughs> Boston, yeah. I mean, keeping, the dream, of, keeping the dream of four championships in one city alive. So I, the Celtics are not really No, that's going to go. And also one. the Red Sox are, are uh, well, 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 no, well, they I mean, won I, last you'd year. You'd have so to count last year. Give us a little bit about that. We've kind of, the MLB is not in the most exciting time of the season, so it's getting a little bit over. Shadowed. Is yeah. there anything notable? Well, actually, things oh, are. Uh, Otani. Otani's yeah, coming, coming, coming back, back. Which, is, but he's not going to be coming back as a pitcher, so he'll just be batting. Ever or just this season? No, just this season. He's recovering from the Tommy John surgery, which takes about a year, year plus okay. for throwing, but, but apparently bat- not so much for, for batting. It doesn't, yeah. It, yeah. Batting doesn't impede batting the rehab. Batting doesn't impede the rehab, wow. so he can, he can hit. Yeah, because Didi Gregoris also had Tommy John, right? And he's, he's only going to be out for uh, half a season, I think. Yeah, well, so, but, uh, you know, he's. Uh, I mean, you could, I guess. 
have him as a DH, but I don't think you want Didi Gregorius as your DH. You really need him to play shortstop, which means no, he's I, understand. I understand. Um, I understand. So he will he, he, only does... be out in the end uh, for a half a season, right? I, um, I may be a little longer than that for, D, for okay. Gregorius. So okay. we're, we're not really sure because he's had the surgery right at the end of last season. Whereas Otani is going to definitely He's DH. definitely going to hit. He's definitely going to DH, and he won't okay. be doing any playing in the okay. field. So yes. setting aside. But there's a, what's happened has been the resurgence of the, of the predicted teams, all right? So um, the Yankees are still hanging in there despite having lost all their players. The Red Sox have surged. Now they're not they're not in the toilet anymore. They're now nearing 500, 500 and not ridiculously yeah. out and uh, we're expecting to see much better things from the Red Sox. The Cleveland Indians have fallen a little bit but they've lost Kluber to injury. I and saw now, that. So, mad so uh, yeah. um, and the Astros are dominating in the in the National League you got the the preseason it was all a mess. Nobody knew what was going to happen. And, uh, I would say those four teams that the Braves, the Phillies, the, the Mets and the Nationals were all kind of going to vie for it. The Nationals have fallen back a little bit, but I think they've had some bad luck. And, of course, the Phillies are winning. But it's hard to know yeah. exactly what has done that. I mean, Harper, last night he had a grand slam, but has not had a great season. He had his usual torrid first six games, and then the next 15 have been nothing you know, short of just pretty awful. It looks um, like the Dodgers are having a The Dodgers are having a great season, so, and they were the preseason favorite. Yeah. So okay. it takes a little bit of time, but things are starting to snap back into order. The The Orioles are at the bottom. where They started off hot, yeah. and they're doing they're well, doing. They're we knew, we, we knew that. We knew that was illusory. Um, so uh, no hitter last night. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mike Fierce, second one of his career. Do you remember the first one? I don't. Do you remember, remember what team he was on when he hit the no. pitch the first one? Houston Astros. I looked it up. Okay. But yeah, Mike Fears. So so tell me about that. I'm I, glad they didn't pull him in the eighth because he hit his pitch count. I can't stand that. <laughs> how, do we know how many pitches he threw? Not sure. No. But uh, how 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 average does a pitcher need to be before you're surprised when he throws a no hitter? Well, I'm pretty surprised that this guy's strong two no hitters. Well, the thing about about pitching, which is I think one of the most remarkable um, athletic accomplishments, is it is it is one of the most variable on an outcome-by-outcome basis of any singular individual performance, which has a lot of repetition. So, yeah, basketball has a lot of, you can have a lot of individual variation, but a lot of that has to do with just, you know, randomness. These are binomials in basketball. But a pitcher on certain days can have unbelievable movement and and speed, and you just don't know where it came from. The game-by-game variation in a pitcher's performance is astoundingly large. Hmm. That's that's interesting. I wouldn't have known that. And especially to say it's more than in other... Other performance, and, and so one of the things that makes a great pitcher great is every time they get out there, they have great stuff. Mm-hmm. And you take an average pitcher, and every now and then they're just going I to see. be yeah. unhittable. You, and this you, is you just... can have some historically great pitchers like Pedro Martinez that aren't credited with any no hitters. Wow. Right. So this is just mechanically sometimes the physiology of that day, and probably some some pitchers are higher variance yeah. than others, and so yeah, maybe I mean, Pedro was a lower variance. Are really high variance too, That's right? True. I mean, right, it's right, a lot right. easier to throw a no hitter against. But I took Audi's claim yeah. to be independent of opposition. That if you were actually tracking the ball, yes. so, for so, example. So for, oh, example yeah. so for example, that we have this tracking data. If you look at the at the trajectory of a, of a pitcher's velocity over the course of a game. It starts where it starts. It moves. It actually gets a little faster as the innings move on. And by the fourth inning or so, it starts to fall. And by the seventh inning, this it's, is, it's... Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the, kind of the within, average I'm right talking, well, across pitchers, right? Because that's not always going to happen. No, but this is the average overall. Pitchers has a little bit of an arc, and it and it starts to tail off by the fourth Wait, inning. What's the difference from start to well, peak? This is my, my point. The variance in the difference between start to peak, peak inside a game is smaller than the in-between game variants in their, in their velocity. 
velocity. So a pitcher can be like 93 to 96 game to game, but within a game, it's about two miles an hour. It's less. So the actual variance, variation caused by fatigue, yeah. Yeah. is less than the game to game variation within mm-hmm. a pitcher. Within, within a pitcher. Within yeah, a pitcher. That's interesting. That's, mm-hmm. that's very, so this is, this is opposition yeah. independent, right? So yeah. this is, we can do this in, in this sport. So interesting. By the way, Fierce, uh, 131 pitches. One of the I'm most, so happy they kept him in. One of the most interesting things. That's the most thrown in a no hitter since he himself. Through however many he threw against the Dodgers when he was pitching for the Astros in 2015. Delighted to hear it because what's happening is that they're pulling these pitchers with no hitters in the seventh or eighth inning because they hit their pitch limit, which I am in tremendous opposition to. Yeah, because you want to see no hitters. Because I think, I mean, not because I want to know these pitchers. No, I want to see no hitters. Speaking of things you want (laughs) to see, speaking of things you want to see, let's go back a week to Noah Syndergaard's no hitter. And the amazing thing about that is that he also. Drove in the winning run with the home run, so they win one. They win right. one to nothing, and he hit the home run mm-hmm. while throwing a no hitter. So there's this great article by Sam Miller, ESPN.com. Threw a new hitter, or it was just a shutout. It was I'm a sorry, shutout. I'm it wasn't sorry. no hitter. Ah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm making it bigger than it actually is, but it was a still, shutout. It so still very as impressive. a complete game shutout. Yeah. A complete game Which shutout by definition, and yeah. hit a home run for the and yeah. scored. So basically, he did everything that was necessary to win. Yeah, the game. I think he called it. I read the article. The, the Sam Miller. Miller. Yeah. He called it a true win. No, no. He said his buddy calls it a true <laughs> oh, win. Buddy calls he it proposed it. that you call it a Bob Gibson, which yeah. has got a lot more flavor than a true win. And right. it's because Bob Gibson had more of those than anybody else. He had like ever. six of these six where he threw a shutout and yeah. also drove in the winning run. Yeah, he has the he had the all-time best. Well, I mean, we can debate that. In terms of absolute scale, he had the all-time best pitching season. Where he, he had an ERA of about one. Okay. <laughs> so every year, other game was he was that, uh, this was I think sixty eight. Okay. Uh, the next year they raised them, they lowered the mounds. Right. There was okay. essentially no scoring in the league that year. Okay. So while you know he he of course he did. By the way, how, how much did they lower the mounds? What did it take? Uh, five to... inches. It was fifteen wow, inches, and they lowered Lord. it to ten inches, which is enormous. I mean, it was an enormous difference. And and of course the ne- very next year. Batting went up, and yeah. it was a it was a huge. So Gibson did that. Did that. Uh, most of them happened in that season where he was averaging one run a game, averaging. But, but yeah. by the way, he's turning around and batting against and that, batting, same, that same fifteen inch mound, right? Yeah. Right, right. Of course. And yet he's making he's hitting home runs. So that, that had never conceived of the idea before, and now it's a thing. There's a there's a name for it. I love well, it. You know, the Miller here. What I love about the Miller article, among other things, is just his enthusiasm for. You have to stop and appreciate these things. You have to appreciate in sports. You have these things, these moments that are. Truly unusual. It's the accomplishment is just so worthy. They're and rarer than perfect games. Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, they're, they're not that much rarer though, right? It's they're, very close. But perfect games are oh, considered the most one of the most rare things in baseball. Yeah. And this is, but people are talking about Otani doing this, but he's not going to because they're mm-hmm. not letting him bat on the yeah. days that he's pitching. Uh, okay. Have there been more hitting for the cycles versus perfect games? Because hitting uh, for yes. the cycles, cycles also rare, but I think it's more than a perfect game. Okay. But I'm, I'm not going to swear by it. What about hitting right. for the cycle in the playoffs? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I don't know. <laughs> there you go. All right, guys. That has been the first quarter of Warden Moneyball. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies, all three now of my buddies, faculty colleagues, and Wharton Moneyball collaborators, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Eric Bradlow just walked through the door. Good morning, Eric. Hey, good morning, guys. I was listening to the first half hour on the show on the way in. Were you dying not being able to talk? Were you uh, screaming for things you wanted us to say? I mean, Matt cut me off. I, I dialed one eight four four warden one eight four four nine four two seventy sixty six twice during that half hour. And he said, don't worry, you'll be in soon. <laughs> That's hilarious. Like, No, we're full right now. Can't, can't take the call right now. Well, we're glad to have you back, Eric. We um, had a fun uh, first half hour. 
Hour. There's a lot of, lots going on in the world of sports, lots to cover. We will have open lines again one hour from now in the last quarter. In this half hour, we are delighted to welcome onto the show Todd Golden. Todd is the head coach of the University of San Francisco men's basketball team. He has a history of basketball coaching, most recently with Bruce Pearl at Auburn. Bruce Pearl also coached at Tennessee before this year he took his team deep into the deep into the the the, the postseason tournament. He also at Columbia, up here closer to our neck of the woods, Columbia, he's a he was a basketball player at St. Mary's. He played overseas in Israel, and he is, as we'll learn, a fan of sports analytics and basketball. Todd, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, gentlemen. I appreciate you guys uh, having me on. I'm a loyal listener. Loyal listener. Oh, that's that's great to hear. Where are you calling in from this morning? I'm calling in from uh, you know my kitchen out here in San Francisco early morning, but my kids are still sleeping, so it's all good. Ah, well, we are always especially appreciative of people who who we talk to on the West Coast. You guys have to get up uh-huh. early to catch us for the show, and and we're glad you're up for it. We should mention that you are the second youngest Division One coach in men's basketball at 33 years old. So, congrats on landing this job at this early age. It's impressive. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. It's, uh, you know, it was more so because of the success we've had here at San Francisco in the first three years. And uh, a lot of the credit goes to my former boss, Kyle Smith, who, uh, you know, he just got the head job at Washington State okay. because of the success they kept and promoted me here. Well, listen, we want to hear more about what you're doing. Set, set the scene for us a little bit. So USF is some, I mean, I... We don't hear that much about basketball from these guys, but y'all play D1 ball. We, we know about your conference a little bit, but tell us more about your conference. Tell us more about the basketball history at USF. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's, it's pretty crazy because if you go back, you know, to the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, USF was one of the proudest, you know, men's basketball programs, you know, across all of America. You know, they battled UCLA back in the day of, uh, you know, when they had Bill Russell and Bill Cartwright going up against Lou Alcindor and, and all those guys in USF, you know, one of, I think, 14 or 15 schools uh, that has won multiple Division One national championships. So a proud history, and, you know, it's obviously our job to kind of pick it back up. And, and this league is it's a really, really competitive league. Uh, I think, according to Ken Pomeroy, it finished as either the seventh or eighth best conference in, in America. Obviously, we have a top-five team in the country in our conference in Gonzaga and uh you know Randy Bennett over at St. Mary's where I played he's done a great job over the last 20 years uh they actually beat Gonzaga in the conference championship this year when Gonzaga was ranked number one in the country to receive the automatic bid um to go to the NCAA tournament so we were two bid league this year uh but then you have us you have BYU San Diego you know a handful of other west coast teams and it's a really really old competitive league so, Todd, uh, it's neat to have that history. That's extraordinary history, of course. It has been a while, but it's nice to have that tradition to build on and to sell people. Where is the university right now in its interest in supporting and developing the basketball program? You know, we see we see schools sometimes be real, real thoughtful about, okay, we're going to de-emphasize this sport or we're going to emphasize this sport. What kind of, and you may not be able to talk very freely about this because it's political, of course, but what is is there something public that you can talk about that the university is or is not doing in terms of okay, we want to get the basketball program back, or we want to build it. Yeah, you know, I, I think they they've done a really nice job uh, in terms of supporting us financially. Uh, you know, they they try to give us the resources that we need in different areas to be successful. Now, the one benefit that we have here at, at San Francisco uh, compared to a lot of other you know mid major, so to speak, Division One programs is that we don't have football. So, uh, you know, our administration, both on the academic and athletic side. 
uh, are more willing to invest financially in our program because they don't have you know a 90 scholarship sport right. uh, on the men's side that they have to throw a lot of money into. So they, they've done a great job. I really appreciate our administration, both on the athletic and academic side. And, uh, they've been very supportive of us. Well, you know, if you talk to, I'm sure, the administrators at Gonzaga or Butler, they would talk about the impact that a successful basketball program has had on the university, you know, the number of there, applicants. There, yeah, there's there's no question about it. And, and St. Mary's College, where I went, is a great example of that. You know, when Randy Bennett got the job in 2001, uh, you know, they, <laughs> he took over a program that was 2-27, and and, you know, over the first three years of his, you know, his reign there, they, they I think they improved close to, like, 260 spots. Um, they went from, like, a program that was 320th in the country uh, all the way up to 60th or something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And there was definitely a direct correlation between the success once they started making the tournament and getting those eyeballs on national TV to the amount of applicants they received to the university. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, t- tell us about what you're doing at USF and where your interest in analytics come from. Why, why, such, a, why such an evangelist and, uh, and user of these things? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question, and, and the best answer I can give you guys is simply, uh, I, you know, going back to the er- mid-'90s, uh, Kyle Smith, who I referenced earlier, my, my former boss who actually recruited me as an assistant coach to St. Mary's, uh, he was an assistant at the University of San Diego. They had a really, really small team, and uh, he was really concerned. How a small team? You mean, you mean you mean like a shorter, like literally size yeah, of height. the players? Yeah, okay. height. Exactly. Sorry. Yeah, and height. And so, you know, one of the conversations amongst their coaching staff was, how are we ever going to grab a rebound? You know, they're playing a six-seven center, they're a six-five power forward. Um, some they were really concerned about. So. Kyle, all, you know, he, he simply developed a, a pretty basic model, um, you know, just gathering data from the five-on-five competition in practice um, on rebounding. Mm-hmm. You know, guys boxing out, guys mm-hmm. not boxing out, guys, you know, going to the glass for offensive rebounds when that was deemed their job. And then he just gave these, these different statistics. He gave them point values. And then uh, what they noticed was as they were tracking all this data, they ended up using it as a teaching tool giving it to the players, you know, saying, hey, you, you boxed out eight times today. You didn't box out four times. We need a better ratio, uh, you know, things like that, just small teaching points. And with this small team, they ended up becoming a top 50 rebounding team in the country. Oh, wow. And uh, so what they figured, you know, we're really on to something. And then as Kyle moved over to St. Mary's when Randy Bennett got the job in 2001, they really just blew it out. Um, they moved it across, you know, all forms of the game from shooting and scoring to uh, you know, rebounding to defense to what we call hustle, which is really just positive defensive plays. And you know, Randy Bennett and Kyle Smith—they're really the two that put this whole system together. They—they're the genesis of it. And the reason why I'm so passionate of it, simply, I went to St. Mary's back in '03 as a walk-on player, and uh, I, I became really just a product of this system, and ended up becoming a three-year starter, where I, I beat out other guys that were on scholarship. Because this hustle stat system was a meritocracy. It didn't care if you were on scholarship. didn't care if you were a senior. It was really just about production. Wow. So one of the things you're, you're saying, a couple of things that really jump out to me. One, you're talking about using analytics in detail in practice. It's not just about the game. It's in practice. Um, yep. Another dimension you're talking about is collecting a lot of data. It's not just like one thing, like a plus minus or something. You're talking, I think it's something like 50 
different stats per possession. So you're really tracking everything possible. But then third and perhaps most importantly, you're not just using those data to identify which players you want to use for games. You're using them to develop players. You're feeding this information back to players to let them know precisely what they're doing well and what they're not doing as well. And so these analytics tools, which are often thought of as an as an identification and assessment tool, you're using them as much for the, the development of the player. Uh, absolutely. I, I think that's honestly the, the biggest value uh, for this system is, is the teaching of the players. And, and why it's great is it's there's nowhere to hide, right? This is, is data. Right. It's, it's pretty easy to understand. And, you know, you, you might, if you watch practice with a naked eye, say we play 30 minutes of 5 on 5, you might remember this guy, you know, taking the ball down the lane for a tomahawk dunk and getting a, a great block. Um, on the defensive end and thinking, man, that guy had a great practice. Right. You go back and you evaluate the film and you see, well, shoot, he really ended up missing four or five defensive assignments. He had two turnovers he forgot about. Um, you know, he wasn't in, in the right position offensively. And you realize, you know, he really didn't have a great practice. And so this is when you use that data and you can walk through and, and you got, you're right, it's about 45, 50 stats. And, and I think moving forward, we're going to try to clean it up a little bit and try to, try to uh, take that number down just a touch because some of it's repetitive. But uh, it really is a great, uh, great tool for these guys. We can sit down with our players. We can cut up film to show them these different areas where, you know, where they were scoring or not scoring in practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the, the neatest thing that, that Randy and Kyle did, uh, which is, is, is just great for the players, is – they, you know, obviously we, we get the data, we rank the players every day, we show it to them, and what we end up doing in our first scrimmage uh, in the preseason is we start the top five guys, uh, you know, in that the data spits out. So, you know, you might go into practice thinking, hey, this guy's going to be our starting point guard, but if he doesn't, you know, finish at the top of the point guards, then he's not getting that start. Uh, so it gives everybody equal opportunity it's a meritocracy that way that's amazing that's amazing i do assume that there's like positional considerations and stuff like that when you do this right yeah i mean you're you're generally what we do is we try to you know group these guys um you know obviously point guards you know pretty unique but then you know at the two and the three the wings for example you know you have five guys that are competing for those two spots and then you have even we we won't necessarily start a true center you know we might play undersized if uh, you know a six, seven, six, eight guy that generally plays the wing or the four beats out our center, then then he's going to get the nod in that first you know that first practice scrimmage, and and he'll he'll be able to hang on to that job as long as he can. So Todd, this is Eric Bradlow. Um, I'm it's unfortunate we only have a two hour radio show because I think we have. Well, first of all, we're in admiration of what you're doing, and we also have a thousand questions for you. But Seriously. Um, yeah, sure. but but let me start with the first one. Um, how yeah. do you combine all of the different stats for sure into a ranking? Yeah. Right. No, it's it's a great question. And like I said, this is by no means is this uh, a, a perfect model. But what, Todd, it, by the way, Todd, we can help you. We, we can help you with this. But, by the way, but also we're not going to be judgy. We're not judgy here. Yeah, not, are, <laughs> not only are we not judgy, but my the colleague to my left, Adi Weiner, runs a program with undergraduates that look exactly at problems like this. For example, which statistics relate most to winning? What are optimal ways to combine statistics to come up with things? This would be a great. This would be a great student project, but I'm just interested in how you do it now. By the way, if this is also intended to be an incentive for the players, they need to understand it. It needs to be relatively transparent. And so you can't just say which is the optimal for prediction. It has to also work. All right. Well, let me me hear Todd's answer. I want to see how he does it. No. So it's it's, like I said, it's uh, it's basically what we do is we show the guys 
the different stats that we collect, and then we show them the point values in which we give for those given stats. And uh, I'm not going to get into all the detail in terms of what stats, but for, I'll give you one stat, for example, that we keep in our hustle stats that you generally, you know, might not think about or, um, you know, passing is something in the box score, right, that really assists and turnovers are the only two stats in the box score for basketball, right? Would that would that be fair to argue? So we track a lot more ball handling stats. So we track eight or nine ball handling stats um, because we don't feel like assists and turnovers paint the whole picture. So, for example, we keep a stat that I'm sure you guys have heard. It's simply a hockey assist – or, uh, sorry, a virtual assist. Right. So what a virtual assist is is, you know, a guy comes down – breaks down the defense, gets inside the paint, throws out, gets a wide-open shooter a shot, but he misses the three, right? Right. Um, that, that's a great play. That's something that he Absolutely. deserves credit for because he creates an opportunity for his teammate. Now, in the box score, you don't get credit for that because the guy doesn't make the shot. But we give you credit for making that play because it's a winning play. It's something that helps us, um, you know, get the shot we want. So it doesn't get all the credit. Um, that an assist was. It's about 75-80% in terms of the point value. But over the course of, you know, three to six weeks of practice, you know, that, that stuff becomes really valuable. So, like I said, it's not – this system's not perfect. It generally um, will give you uh, bigger guys doing well simply because rebounding is such a big part of it. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if you have a really good rebounding team and you're able to play good big guys, you're, you're going to be pretty good. So – um, we, we just kind of cobble it all together. We end up, you know, you get your hustle stat value, and then we divide it basically by the possessions that you play in practice. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gives you your hustle stat efficiency, we call it. Uh, and then that's how we generally rank the players. Todd, let's jump in real quickly. So this is Adi Weiner. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your underlying data because there's some great information being extracted from the tracking data, which looks at as, as the ball moves around the court, what happens to the expected point valuation? So... In the scenario that you described, if if someone gets a breakaway and gets into the paint and then tosses it out to a wide-open three, you're going to get a lot of credit in expected number of points. And what you're pointing out is that – and that's completely outcome-independent. You're just going to calculate it. It doesn't matter whether the ball went in or not. You're getting the credit. But you're not doing this from the tracking data. You're doing it directly from just the the play-by-play. Is that correct? Yeah, or? No, no, we're old school, man. So what we do <laughs> – Old school. We, we're old school. So we break it down um, – by our staff. So, like last year, my role, I was the associate head coach, my role was to break down the defense, okay? So I'm going in after practice, we're getting the practice film put on our computers by our manager, and then we're going down and we're breaking down the five-on-five practice with our eyes, and we're just statting by hand. So we have our, um, you know, our different breakdowns and our different areas that we're statting, whether it's, you know, like defensive rotation, deflections, uh, you know, charges taken, whatever it may be, and then we're just grading it by ourselves. It's kind of like pro football focus a little bit that way. So, Todd, let me just compliment you. Uh, the first thing I ever learned in analytics was from a BYU uh, volleyball coach, Gil Fellingham. He said, the only way to do analytics is to track every player on every play during practice, and that's how you build a winning analytics program. Wow, and has to be has to be rare, right? Every pro, every play practice and games. Todd, Todd, a couple last yeah. quick ones, and we're down to well, just one question, I think. Given that this is what you're doing, you must run practice differently. So, for example, we would want you to be rotating people in at some structured, exogenous schedule to, to maximize the variation. Uh, to an extent, yes. You know, I think what, what happens is over the course of, you know, the preseason, the preseason in college basketball has gotten really long. You know, over the past 
handful of years, I want to say maybe, you know, five to seven years ago, they extended. We used to only be able to start practice three weeks before our first game. Mm-hmm. Now we can start practice 42 days before our first game. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we are, we're having the opportunity to collect a lot of data. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we do track every five on five possession and we keep it, we keep it very consistent that way, obviously, because if you track four and four, it'd be different. Uh, only five on five stuff. And we generally get to the five on five stuff at the end of practice. So, it, you know, it's, we're doing our defensive breakdowns. We're doing our, you know, individual skill development, what we call big little at the beginning of practice, things like that. And then once we get into five on five, cameras rolling and uh you know we get back into the office after practice and break it down mm-hmm. after that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. listen todd eric is right we could have talked to you for a, a very long time and that means we're going to want to have you back if you're up for it this is terrifically interesting and um we have a lot to learn from you i suspect but we wish you the best with the work we very much appreciate your interest in doing this and especially getting up as early as you did for this kind of phone call from the west coast really appreciate it no, I appreciate you guys having me on. Happy to come on whenever whenever you would have me, and uh, I appreciate it a lot. Absolutely. Todd, Todd Golden, head coach of the University of San Francisco, storied, storied basketball program with a couple of national championships in the 50s, Bill Russell era basketball. He is pushing sports analytics in his basketball team out there. This has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday. 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, Eric Bradlow, Ali Weiner, Shane Jensen. Rolling into the second half, we have a guest here at the top of the hour, and then we'll have open lines at the bottom of the hour. Dan O'Coin is our guest this half hour. He's from Driveline Baseball. If you haven't heard about Driveline, you're not paying quite enough attention to baseball because people are writing about it these days. They're also at the vanguard of using analytics for player development. They will hear more about those guys in a minute. Dan O'Coin from the player development departments with the Toronto Blue Jays and Tampa Bay Rays before moving over to driveline baseball. Dan, good morning and welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. Morning. Where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, I actually work remotely, so driveline is based out of Seattle, but uh, I'm here in New Jersey, right outside New Brunswick. Wow. Uh, so nice, bright early. Well, if we knew that, we would have tried to get you in here in the studio, and you're welcome to come by the studio anytime. Uh, and it's not quite as early here as it is in Seattle, thankfully for you, but we appreciate your appreciate your reaching out. Um, listen, give us a little background on yourself before we hear about Driveline. You were with the player development departments with the Jays and the Rays, but for those listeners who may not understand, what, what is what is player development in baseball these days? What, why do, does every team have these departments? What do you guys do in player development in Major League Baseball? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. It's kind of like a sort of a wide-ranging sort of department that has a bunch of different facets to it individually, but basically I just kind of liken it to minor league operations of a different respective organization. So everything from travel, uh, you know, to budget, to sort of uh, the coaching staff, everything in between that's sort of all under the player development wing. Um, so, I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, it's just trying to get, you know, minor league players to be, uh, sort of, or I guess, reach their their ceiling as, as best we possibly can, uh, and so that holds true for whichever department you're in in, in player development. So whether it's on the 
analyst side or coaching side or even the, the business ops side, I guess, if you will. Um, so there's a lot of different components to it, but uh, at the end of the day, that kind of main overarching theme stays the same. Okay, so it's, it's, it's something that every team would have kind of necessarily, but they might deploy very different tools and technologies and how they go about it. Um, yeah. And this is kind of where you guys are heading. How did you, how did you get involved in that to begin with? How, how did you end up in player development with these professional teams? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, I mean, for me, you know, kind of growing up, I had sort of the prototypical background of someone who wants to be an analyst in, in a front office, right? So, um, you know, just kind of reading baseball perspectives, fan graphs, money ball, all those different types of, of resources growing up. Um, it, didn't, it didn't take me until about probably 2014. I had an internship with a, with a summer ball team, actually, uh, that was close to home. And uh, we had the privilege of hosting the All-Star game that year. And... Um, you know, up leading up the week leading up to the All Star Game, I'd kind of been dreading uh, the sort of the sort of experience that I was going to have because um, I hadn't really ever had much interaction with scouts before. But I was on the baseball side, so I was basically in charge of being their liaison, making sure the skills competition went you know went well, making sure they had everything they needed for the game, game notes, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, you hear all these stories about their sort of regressive way of thinking, and you know, I was probably not the most excited about just having to deal with all that and you know it got to game day and i'm sitting behind home plate with them and it you know kind of dawned on me that i just didn't really know much at all about what they were talking about right so um you know first pitch comes in they they're writing a bunch of notes and i'm just sitting there it's just another pitch to me right i don't have access to spin data pitch movement metrics none of that i have no computer in front of me and to me it was just you know another pitch and for them, all of their, you know, they're able to collect all this information. So I'm like kind of looking over my shoulder. You know, it just kind of like dawned on me at that time that I just really didn't know much about how the game itself was played. Mm-hmm. I just knew about sort of the underlying stats that were involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so that always fascinated me. So fortunately, the opportunity just kind of uh, was presented to me to kind of get thrown, uh, you know, into the fire with the Blue Jays in their play development department. Uh, as a video intern first year with their Appy League team, so it really doesn't get much more <laughs> raw minor leagues than the Appalachian League, but um, you know, it was a perfect opportunity for me to just kind of uh, sort of widen my background and my perspective, and yep. I kind of just fell in love with it, and then you know, just kind of stuck with me for following two seasons, one more year uh, with the Blue Jays, and then uh, moved on to the Rays, and then ultimately drive-on opportunity came up, and it just kind of coincided perfectly with sort of my, my background sort of wanting to work in a front office and then also applying those player development concepts as well. Got it. So remind me about the Rays. I'm, I'm sitting here with a bunch of baseball guys. Y'all can remind me. But, I mean, I know the Blue Jays, I mean, from Mark Shapiro down, they're trying to rebuild that club, that franchise, and kind of the way they built the Indians. And so we think of that as being a pretty sophisticated, advanced organization. The Rays may be in the same the Rays direction. The Rays have the largest, I think, the largest analytics staff of any uh, Yeah, well, they, they don't spend on the field. They spend behind it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So that's a couple of interesting organizations to cut yeah. your teeth on, right? I mean, that's that's those are those are really sophisticated, at least from our perspective, they look that way. Okay, so in 2017, after a few years inside teams, you jump over to driveline baseball. How early in driveline's history was this? Oh, uh, it was probably sort of at the inflection point where it started to take off. Um, I'd say, you know, I've, I've been reading Kyle for a while, uh, the CEO and founder, or the founder, and uh, and. You know, when I started working pro ball, stuff started to resonate with me more and more. Um, and then probably around, like, I would say early, early 2017, I started to realize, you know, the company was 
Since we're talking to Dan, Dan O'Coin, Dan is with Driveline Baseball. He's been there since 2017 after a player development career with the Toronto Blue Jays and Tampa Bay Rays. A little tough to hear him there, but he's talking about when he moved over that the Driveline Baseball was kind of just taking off, and they had some big leaguers come in in the last couple of years, and so they're gaining more profile. Of course, there was a big article written about Trevor Bauer mm-hmm. in the last offseason, de- developing a pitch from scratch, essentially, using the tools that Driveline Baseball makes available, the spin rates and the velocities and all the Whoa. super high high um it's the high definite what, what they really what they're really able to do is show you what your hand is doing as the ball leaves the hand mm-hmm. and it turns out that very slight changes in position and grip is what causes enormous variation mm-hmm. in ball movement and because they're so slight, they've not been able to identify it as precisely and give people feedback as precisely right. as they can now. So that's it's just high-speed cameras as long as, as also the tracking information of the trajectory of the ball that they tell you immediately what's going on, and then you just mm-hmm. play around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Dan, it's great to have you back on. Um, this is Eric Bradlow. A quick question. What would you say is drivelines, if you'd like, target market? Is it to make the... You know, call it recreational high school baseball player. Better is it to get someone into a D one college? Can you like? Can you guys help people at all range of the spectrum, even the most elite athletes? Or where do you guys think about where you have the most value add? Yeah, yeah, no, good question. I would say that I mean, just kind of uh, based on the athletes that we get at our facility, it's, it's cast a pretty wide range of athletes that we're able to help. In terms of uh, in terms of a target, it really depends. I think for you know youth athletes, and, and we'll have you know ages you know eight up uh, come to the facility, and it really is just about you know having them take the basics, enjoy learning the game, uh, and, you know have as much fun as possible. Um, obviously, when you sort of move up the, the scale on the ladder, it becomes more and more specific. There's less low hanging fruit that's able to pick. So you know we get a bigger year that comes in, they probably max out their ceiling in terms of velocity probably have decent command, but that's when we start adding more and more technology to their assessment. Okay, let's get them marked up. Let's see if there are any uh, striking efficiencies with their biomechanics that we're able to sort of tackle or, you know, kind of pertain to the pitch design stuff, being able to sort of look at their repertoire. Is there anything that we can try and fix and sure up that's going to give them, uh, you know, give the best success? So it really does depend. Um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say there's a target sort of market, and that's kind of stemming from how we sort of uh, program athletes, athletes, which is you know sort of uh, uh, sort of maximizing what we can on the assessment process. So each athlete will come through an assessment. We'll see what they need and sort of cater their program to their individual needs. And it's just a matter of being as flexible as possible. So we're not trying to leave out any athletes, uh, and we're kind of able to speak to them. Yeah. So I would say there's, there's one target per se. All right, Dan. Listen, we're, we're gonna we're gonna see if we can improve the connection. We may need to reschedule you for another time. We can do it a little more clarity. We think this is terrifically interesting. We've wanted to talk to Driveline Baseball for a little while. This truly is the cutting edge of analytics and sports, meaning taking it from assessment to development and development at this very 
very granular level, which is paying off immediately for some big league players. So we think it's going to happen in more sports over time. Baseball is kind of at the front of it. Baseball guys, baseball had been kind of jumped over by basketball in terms of technology and analytics, and now because of this stuff, precisely because well, of this well, stuff, I mean, base, <clears throat> baseball has jumped basketball. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know if it's it's really worth even kind of ordering them right because I mean, in in both they they are certainly both great examples of how analytics and its usage has actually changed the way the game is played in a very kind of tangible, observable way over the last decade or so. And you, you're seeing dramatic effects in, ba- you know, noticeable effects in baseball, but also in basketball. I think it builds on what Adi said earlier. You guys were talking about, I, in the first half hours, listening, you are talking about the guy that threw the no-hitter for the second time. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about how much variability there is from game to game. And when I watch sports even now, my sons ask me all the time, like, can't this basketball player just take 10,000 free throws a day and like what Simmons no 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 can't they just like perfect their shooting motion so that it's replicable can't a pitcher just look these pitchers throw thousands of pitches you know in preseason etc can't they just get it where their arm angle and I'm trying to describe to them the problem is half a degree difference something within the I'll call it the human measurement error or human physiological error can affect the rotation on the ball the spin of the ball that's what you were saying even you know, even a mediocre pitcher can have that, that day. Great a day. Well, it's, you've no. always said it's n times p. You have enough mediocre pitchers pitch enough games. There will be one of them where, for an extended period of time, I mean, it is just an, a, a sample size times yeah, rate. But problem. The point that I was making about pitching is a little different than the basketball point because you can you can take a basketball player can take twenty free uh, twenty three point shots when their base rate is say twenty five percent and go fifty yeah. percent. It's not going to happen that often, but it's going to happen, and they're going to look amazing just and have an incredible game. Point, right, boom, you're going to happen. But with pitching, it's a little different. I mean, when a guy goes out there and throws a no hitter and and this guy had a 6.8 ERA going into this game. Yeah. It was the highest all-time ERA of any pitcher at the time of their no-hitter after, you know, when you exclude those in their beginning of the season. So it's just this guy's been terrible all season, and now he throws a no-hitter. And I don't think it's simply to do with the NP, which, I mean, obviously have partly to do with that. Many attempts gives you an opportunity. But he just had great stuff. And Why? Yeah. Why did he have well, that let great me just say, stuff? Let's go back to Shane's point about <laughs> what advanced metrics can tell us. Do we actually know from last night that he had great stuff? Yes. Or do we know that the well, batters... Wait, wait. Could have been powerful. Another yeah. possible, possibility, right. which we can now measure, mm-hmm. is given where the ball was located and the speed yeah. and its trajectory, what the batting average should have been for those. Right. And so now and, we can compare no-hitters. And, fa- and, and in fact, yeah, I mean, once you're kind of there, once you're trying to sort of build up sort of the... The what, how stuff the you know kind of these like you know measurables projects no hitters. You can start talking about like you know things like expected number of no hitters and stuff like that. <laughs> right, I mean, right, right, right. Pedro probably had like five expected no hitters in his career. He just happened to not have a well, single. He was, he was actual. He no was hitter. facing the the highest all time yeah. hitters in, in well, the history of the game. It, it's kind of like <laughs> you know when people look at Nolan Ryan. I think he had seven no hitters. Something nine, like, I think, or something uh, like somewhere that, like yeah. that. Seven, eight, nine, something like that. But if you actually look at the number of one hitters, it was extraordinary too. And my yeah. guess is, if we look at Pedro and we look at the number of one and yeah. two hitters. 
my guess is it would be an extraordinarily large number. I'll just mention also as Pedro, he did have a no-hitter that went into... He actually had a perfect game, but uh, the team lost in the 10th inning because he had no runs. Which doesn't count as a no-hitter. Does not count as a no. I just think this issue of within individual variation is terrifically important and underappreciated. We tend to want to categorize and identify people by their mean performance or even their peak performance. And we might appreciate variance across people, but we don't appreciate variance within person. Since we're we're a business school, I might as well a business school and a business show as well. I've always claimed that I've spent, as a Bayesian statistician, I've spent the last 20 years of my academic career trying to understand variation across people. But now with things, mathematical tools like hidden Markov models, etc., I'm more interested in within-person variation. From a, like When I study marketing, what people buy, Cade Massey is not always the same Cade Massey. Sometimes you're Cade Massey buying for yourself, for your family, etc. And so to me, within-person variation is at least as interesting and now studyable yeah. because of better data well, at the individual and, 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 and level. I think, I think the interesting question is, since you, we, we tackle this by comparing sports, which of the sports or which aspect of the certain sports is the most variable? And I'd claimed, potentially without much data, but on my own experience. That wasn't assertion. Yeah, it wasn't with assertion. With confident with assertion. confidence. We call that a conjecture, a right? A conjecture. <laughs> that, that uh, I know it's a lot in pitching, but I don't know how it compares to other sports and other, and other, and other attributes. And, it's and, it's and very not, big in starting yeah. pitching. And non-sport performance. I mean, this is the thing. We, I, you know, for example, Google did this study. Yeah, maybe we're actually ahead of the game, b- being studying sports where there is so much randomness in there, right? It is I mean, in terms of realizing more the transparent randomness yeah. because tra- randomness is going to exist everywhere. But, so, yeah. for, for real quickly, Google did a study a few years ago. Well, they, multiple years, multiple stages of trying to understand whether managers matter, and then if, if they matter, why, and then who are the best managers. And ultimately, you know, four iterations into this, four generations of studies into this, they realize, well, the, the managers who are best this year aren't necessarily the managers who are best the next year. We have been underappreciating the role of intra-manager variability. Yeah. And this, ha- this must happen at, at organizations everywhere. They identify, and, and this is one of the reasons inertia matters so much. You know, someone comes in, they kill it the first year, and they get identified as a high potential. And and they and and from then on they have these kind of privileged assessments and privileged assignments and people aren't realizing well that you know that might have might have been a little bit of a, yeah. a peak and they may be down the next year anyway there are huge ramifications all flowing from this fact that we underappreciate intra individual variation and I guess the point I interrupted you with was more that I think probably even though even as as as, as sports analysts we um, probably still continually underappreciate that that within person variation we probably appreciate it more than people who are you know than, right. than than the kind of more the business world outside of sports analytics one of the challenges of course I in, agree. one of the challenges of course in baseball and other sports too is when an outcome happens let's say i am a pitcher and i have a bad game because of the right. intra person mm-hmm. variation the coach may come to me and my strategy might change. Oh, Eric, you got to throw more fastballs. You got to throw. So now, all of a sudden, you have a confound problem mm-hmm. because you not only have my performance and ability, but it's confounded with the strategy that I'm taking. So how do I know if in the next game I pitch better? Well, maybe it's because I threw sixty percent curveballs and it had nothing to do with variation. And, and so I've got to be able to separate those right. two things out. Well, when it's I'm not trying just you to, that has to separate. Really, that is that is one of I think the chief burdens or chief. Mandates of a coaching staff is to recognize when 
you know, a bad outcome is really just kind of the, the it's, it's kind of just the yep. interperson variance versus like right. something systematic that actually has to change. And not just coaches, yeah. general managers, owners. Yes, you no, know, you of course, need people of course. To stand I mean, up. you can get reactionary Absolutely. overreactions at every level. Well, I think this is what we were discussing with Bryce Harper's contract because Bryce Harper looked bad on the field last year. Yeah. And his numbers look terrible. And everyone says, you can't have him. And his, his war numbers reflected that. And most people, other people were saying, no, 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 that was just a, a one-off bad season. He'll be back to an average fielder as soon as the, the next season rolls along, which seems to be what's actually happened. Mm-hmm. We'll have to have to play it out. And this makes huge ramifications in your in your, your decision-making. Absolutely. If, you, if you treat that season as anomaly, you're paying him $300 million. If not, you're, you're not giving him crap. Well, and, then, just... and, then, and then, of course, the, the every now and then, their their substantive shifts. There's like a regime shift. Yeah, and so yes. the real challenge is to not, know the difference. not overreacting when it's not and yet identifying. And of course, this is why we find this so interesting. But this whole driveline baseball is really trying to figure out the what, what is happening. So we yeah. see it on the, we see it on the field, on the court. We see that a, a, a basketball player just looks hot or maybe they're just lucky we don't we can't decide whether or not i mean there's anything particular about their motion and so when a basketball player goes on a streak if we had this high tech uh, high resolution data are they shooting more consistently right. i mean are they actually right. doing something better process. or is, is it or is it just they're just getting yeah, lucky good. going in i mean I, one of the things is you know someone who spend a lot of time in and around music you don't see a, a, a violinist go out and go oh he was bad today oh, it, it doesn't happen it doesn't really doesn't you know, don't have like it's like Perlman going out there and like it's boy that's true they have to have true. bad days i mean they probably do they just but it's, uh, the it, variance is nothing like what we see yeah. in sports maybe we just can't discern it that's what yeah. i was going to say maybe I would they be able may, to hear it i'm sure they would yeah, i'm sure you yeah. asked let's put a camera let's put drive license of violins <laughs> to drive nine <laughs> baseball and we'll measure Absolutely. both hands and, 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 and i mean you can kind of see this with pushback yeah no and also i think it's like something like violin or something like that where it's just such you know like i i talk about 10,000 Limited mechanical <laughs> action. I think there probably is lower variation than than other endeavors. Think, but okay. It's also everything Axel is Rose, somebody like a singer or or, or, or no, like you know Axel a band. Rose. Axel Rose has no, bad I days. Wanna, I mean, I wanna, you can wonder if he has good I days think, still. But he, I, Axel Rose has bad no, days. I didn't say I didn't say singers. Singers Dip. have ups and downs. No, right. but, but that's because you're a singer. You're like you're like reasoning with all this nuance because it's your expertise. I, when you're talking about somebody else's expertise, ah, it's all the same. I think Kate's point's a really important one, which is. You know, just, you know, who can actually tell, let's call it the right tail of the distribution, who can tell if you've had a good or bad day? The ability to discern it, it's it's not an obvious thing to do. And by the way, it's not even obvious. I've talked to, you know, since I've spent a lot of time thinking about squash over the last 10 years, I've even asked the expert vegetable? players. The no, the, the sport. <laughs> I've even, although I do like squash, the vegetable too. I've asked even top elite players can they tell when other players are playing well and badly? And the answer is no. In other words, there are certain people, coaches, can watch a match and say, well, person X won the match but is actually not playing well in the match. It's very hard. You, a lot of people saying, well, is, elite is that, players can is, tell. Is no, the they can't. to recognize that just having so many repeated measures of that particular player? Like, you can't really kind of discern the within-person variation unless you watch that person, that particular person, 
essentially all the time. All right, let me, let me be specific. So last night, Embiid looked bad. Uh, none of us, other than Eric, watched it. We, we, uh, I watched, watched, I watched, I watched it. He did look bad. So, Simmons, so, I think, so, so in, worse in the break, we missed this. Eric told us that one of the reasons why the Sixers are doing badly is that Embiid is being double teamed, and Redick uh, can't stop, I guess, what was what He's, a bad, defensive He's a bad player. defensive yeah. player. And Simmons can't shoot. So the question is, so, but Embiid often has tremendous games. So was he playing badly, or was he being managed properly? Can you tell the difference? It's a good question. So the concerns I had about Embiid last night wasn't so much you know his final numbers or anything like that. He, I've never seen someone make so many bad passes, yeah. turn the ball over, um, lapses on defense. Where I remember a play near the in the third quarter where it got competitive for a second. We they scored like the first yeah, 10 or 12, 13 yeah. points. He dribbles down the court, just throws the ball directly to the other guy, gets beaten, and then the guy's going to the basket. And Embiid lets him get a layup. Like, Embiid's at the foul line. The other guy's at the foul line. In that last 15 feet, the other guy gets an uncontested layup. And I saw Embiid just pull up. I'm like, so he's not hustling. He's making bad passes. So I'm more concerned not just... So you noticed him playing worse than he should play. Worse even conditional on what Cade said during the first half hour. He's He's not been feeling well. I get all that. His effort level... The mental aspects of the game. Matter of fact, uh, Todd Golden even talked about it. If you measured his hustle during plays, it would have been atrocious. So why is but, that but not I mean, directly that, related yeah, to I, it's not feeling well? I yeah, mean, it, it could be. Right. I mean, exactly. We, we we still have to deconvolve well, that versus. And also, I mean, I I do think part of that hustle uh, hustle is confounded with the other aspect that you talked about, Audie, which is having a, like an actual strategy or plan mm-hmm. for the game and I mean I don't watch nearly as much basketball as probably any of you but I watched last night and the whole Sixers team just looked lost they had like no plan no strategy, of attack no, no strategy. strategy at all and it's probably you know if we sort of if, if that's real if that if there is like if there really was like a, a dearth of strategy or, or actionable plan for that game it's probably a lot easier to look back Bad as well in terms of hustle and all this stuff in that kind of context. So let's say, let me answer your question. This is the way I look at it. But, you know, illness could be a factor here. Mm-hmm. I think what we all look at is the variation within the game. So are there plays during yesterday's Sixer game where Embiid looked like the old Embiid? Yes. 25% of the time. Then the other 75% of the time, he looked like the lackluster, I don't care, jogging up the court Embiid. So now illness could create, you know, but I think what you heard the commentators, even like Shaquille O'Neal, Charles Barkley, you know, et cetera, say after the game is, if the guy can only play well 25% of the game, it's the coach's fault. Play him 25% of the game. Don't play him 35 minutes, 30 to 35 minutes, if he's, yeah, he can only play 10 minutes of good basketball. Mm-hmm. Don't play him 30 or 35 minutes. So do you think if, if, they, if the Sixers go ahead and get knocked out in this round and they don't turn around, they don't turn around the way they look, do you think Brett Brown is going to run into any trouble in the offseason? That's a great question. I mean, it is, I think it's a legit question. I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I'm very reactionary because I don't watch a lot of basketball, but I, that game last night, it just I, looked like they did not have a coach. Well, you guys even talked about it also in the first half hour about, you know, it's easier to root for the Rockets when, you know, you were talking about P.J. Tucker, and, you know, you look at the Warriors and, like, their eighth-best players an all-star. You know, Boogie Cousins is their fifth-best player, and he's a 25-10 and 10 guy. If you look at the Sixers on paper, 
who should be the better team? The Embiid, Simmons, Harris, Butler, yeah. Reddick, etc. Yeah, they should be beating Toronto. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and they uh, did. I mean, they traded a lot of draft picks to load up for this season. No, exactly. Right? Kind I of think a wasted Brett, opportunity. I think Brett Brown's in trouble. Yeah. I do. I wow. think. I think Brett Brown is in trouble. Okay. Yeah, because I think he's underperforming in the playoffs. And I think this, if they, you know, tomorrow night's game, which I will be at, let's yeah. take a scenario where they get lose by fifteen to twenty points. Yeah, I yeah. think he gets fired. No, I, I, I mean, I, I, I'll just as a counter argument, not that I, I actually agree with you, but just as a counter argument, you know, what other team has kind of out underperformed, you know, their kind of expectations and and you know their on paper talent all season. It's the Boston Celtics. Yeah, Correct. we agree. I mean, I don't think the Boston Celtics coach is at all in danger. I don't either. Fired. But, but the personnel situation there is so different. They just don't have the minutes to go around. And they knew kind of going into the season that they didn't have the minutes to go around. It's just this weird yeah. collection. No, of, I mean, I agree. They're not necessarily directly comparable situations. But I just think it's interesting but, but, because there's such a strong reputation to the Boston Well, that's the right. That, like, that's the other know. thing. Is like, it's, a, it's this Bayesian thing where the prior, yeah. I mean, Brad Stevens got to go a long way before people don't think he's the Boy genius, right? Brett Brown kind of is the opposite problem. People, he was just kind of overseeing the rebuild. No one I, ever thought that he was going, and then he did well enough. Oh, let's keep him around, but people still have that skepticism. Yeah, I, I think the Celtics also. We've actually talked about this. What's the optimal distribution of talent on your team? Forget Kyrie Irving at the moment for just one second, who's not playing well. If you look at the Celtics roster, besides Kyrie Irving, do they have anybody else? Who's a top 20 player in the NBA? I'd say no. But I'd say they have a Hayward. ton of players. Hayward, should, I, I think. He hasn't been but himself no, 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 no. But no, I'm talking about they're 20? currently playing top 20 Horford? player in the NBA. Uh, Horford no, is... Horford's not a top 20 NBA player. I would claim, matter of fact, we can look at the power rankings of players. I would claim they've got a ton of players that are all 8 out of 10 players. They don't have enough superstar What does talent. that mean, 8 out of 10 players? I'm saying, if you know, think about a 10-point scale where the elite players, even say deciles oh. of players, okay? So how many All-Stars do they have? Well, Kyrie Irving. That's it. That's it. Okay. So they, to me... And are you go. sold on That's Kyrie 20. Irving? If you had to choose one All-Star no, to build your team no, around, no, you, not at all. No, exactly. so not no. only that, they don't have the best Con- of the Contrast him with like Kawhi Leonard and what he's doing with the Raptors right now. I mean, I know the Sixers haven't looked good, but what little I've seen, I mean, Kawhi Leonard has ran all over them. Look, Kyrie Irving, There's everyone has their... Look, this is what you see in the NBA. Andre Iguodala was not a great player. He was a good player for the Sixers. He's been a great player for the Warriors. Why? Well, when I'm, you know, I could when I'm playing with Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, I can be a good player too. I would pay to see that. I pay a lot to see that. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. But I'm saying when Andre Iguodala was with the Sixers, he had to be the number one guy. Maybe we should just face it. Kyrie yeah. Irving's a great number two. Mm-hmm. He's a great number two. The same debate. You're an old Chicago guy. People ask Scottie Pippen all the time, are you better than Jordan? He said, well, except for defense, offense, <laughs> hustle, shot making, and the mental aspects of the game, I'm better than him. Yeah. And so Scottie Pippen was a great number two guy. Why don't we just face it? Kyrie Irving is a I, great we, number two. Maybe we'll two. get a chance to see him when he's number two to Durant on the Knicks next well, year. That, well, that would. Uh, but the question is, do you believe he'll be happy being number two? That's no, the that's the irony of it. He wasn't happy being number two, two in Cleveland, LeBron. it looked like. You right. know? So, yeah, we, we don't have trouble accepting him as a number two. That's not 
not the challenge. Yeah. <laughs> he has right, trouble. Right, that's right. Seriously. about the Celtics. Just, but then. hold on a second. I mean, Kyrie, we're talking about who's in number two. He's one of the 20 best basketball players in the world, easily, Kyrie Irving. And yet we're telling him he's a number two. Okay. That's got to be hard to swallow if you're Kyrie Irving. But, but let's just, just remember, though. Of the teams that are left, they all have elite players. And so I think what we should go through is, of the elite players that are left, still playing, let's say even of the 16 teams or 8 teams, sorry, that are still left, I think Cade's point's the right one. Kyrie Irving, at the moment, might be one of the last ones you would take of the players. And then I claim, you're right, I like Al Horford. I'd love Al Horford on my team, but he's not a superstar. I'd love Jason Tatum on my team. I think part of the concern with the Celtics has been Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum haven't developed this year. They're not much better than they were last year. And that people were thinking those were going, they were going to have the big three. They don't. But I thought you were going to say one of the reasons they haven't developed is because there aren't enough minutes enough balls to go around. I mean, one of the reasons you don't want to have... You're the big guy with only one well, ball in basketball. Be, I do, but it could be the opposite, which is Brad Stevens, who has shown to be a great coach, hasn't given them the minutes because they haven't performed well enough to say... Major chicken or egg thing, right? It's Major a big, chicken. Yeah. See, he's, got, he's got... How many egos does he have to manage? I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous challenge in that no, I'm saying They've got a bunch of very talented players, but not enough people okay. to say, I'm going to be the person at the end of the game. What, what about what about for the Sixers? And, we, and we're going to have to wrap up and go, but uh, the Sixers have had a different challenge. The Celtics knew they had that locker room from day one this year, but the Sixers changed their locker room twice substantively in the second half of the season. I mean, that's, and now we want to criticize Brett Brown? Really? Well, I think the criticism of Brett Brown is what Shane had said earlier. There was no strategy whatsoever in that game. They just looked aimless. I, mean, I don't think there was strategy. I mean, that, it, that's partly it, what's your strategy in the people they picked up? I mean, yeah, yeah. there was a lot of t- concern. I mean, you picked up Butler and, and why? And Tobias, and Harris. Tobias Harris. How did they all fit? I mean, that was the issue. As you said, many times, there's only one ball. But even if they, <laughs> even if they do fit, I mean, they can't just drop. They, you can't expect them to just drop in. And one, a the coach knows how to deploy them, and and two, they accept that deployment and execute it perfectly. I mean, right. really, that's just not the way it works. And so you need some time to integrate those pieces. We knew it was going to be a little last minute. And I think we might be bearing some of the fruit of that now. Yeah. We have half an hour to go here in Warden Moneyball Open Lines. You guys can join the conversation. Give us a ring one eight four four Warden one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six or hit us up on. Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle there. You're free to throw questions, observations, complaints, over-under suggestions, because we will be doing our usual over-under segment here in just another 15 or 20 minutes. One quick PSA. The Ravens, Baltimore Ravens NFL Club just south of here, they are expanding their analytics shop. We've got listings. We just sent around on our Wharton Moneyball Twitter account, the listing. So they're hiring a quantitative analyst, and they're also hiring a, a developer. They've got those kinds of folks down there. They're expanding their shop. We want to help teams. We want to help analysts. So if you got a job listing from a professional team, you guys can throw it our way, and we'll try to get a get it up and out on our Twitter account. Adi tells me that the Flyers, the Flyers, right yeah, Flyers are hiring full time analysts. One of the first, I think, you know, full time analysts that they're planning to hire, which is well, obviously interesting for hockey. Let me just say, I want to, you know, what is this, 2004? Come on, Flyers. Yeah. Well, obviously, there was a, you know, a big time announcement here at Wharton yesterday, which I was involved partly with, which was the formation of this entity analytics at Wharton. The part I'm most excited about, 
the opportunity we have for mainly our undergrads, but our undergrads and MBAs, to take jobs in sports analytics, I think, is at an unparalleled time. I mean, I'm thinking about all the students that you're, you guys, I'm staring at Shane and Adi, that you guys are training, but also the students that I see that are working on data-oriented projects to our center. So many of these students already have the right. skills and the passion. They're so good. To take the, but I'm saying, these were people that, I'm not saying, you know, had to take jobs. The only empirical quant jobs that were available 20, 25 years ago were you went into finance or consulting. And now, I'm not saying those aren't good jobs. Those are great jobs. But now there's another path for empirically quantitative, heavy programming kids that want to have an impact on organizations. And it's just remarkable what, you know, the stat department here is doing. And then the PSA that Kay just gave, there's probably 50 organizations that are looking for smart undergrads and MBAs that want to be data scientists. It's a tremendous it, revolution also, in the industry. Uh, it's also a great training ground for students if they want to just spend a couple years as analysts for a sports team and they want to move on to something else. They really learn an enormous numbers of skills. And they're looking for different ty- types of players. Yeah, People, I mean, it, it, it's uh, speaking just kind of so specific. I call them players. Well, yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, the skill, I mean, it's, it's not just the kind of analysis part of it that I I think we would we, we train them very well. I think in the modeling and analysis part of things, but the actual kind of exposure and and and, and actual cleaning and, and 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 skills with data collection as well as the skills with data communication. Well, yeah. I, I think there's no better training ground a, than like working for a, a team for them. Let me ask a question, Adi. Something you just said, and I'd be interested, Cade, in all the work that you guys are doing at People Analytics about this. You just said something that would have been shocking 25 years ago, which is. Going into sports analytics is a great training ground for other jobs. We're the same age, all three of us. If you had told a statistician 25 years ago you're going to work on sports problems, they would have said, Puh, you're working on Floyd, Floyd problems, yeah. exactly. not, not important. And by the way, if you tried to go from sports analytics to finance consultant, they would have said, you have yeah. no training. Do you think those times have changed? I'd love, oh, I, I'd love I your opinion, so. and I'd like Cade's thought on this. Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you my opinion. I think absolutely they have changed, and they've changed in almost exactly in that business context. 100%, but they've also changed in, from the perspective of um, as a professional research-oriented yeah. statistician. When I started, I mean, you had to keep your sports statistics kind of on the on the yeah, QT. I, 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 I got the it. sense I was taking a bit of a risk having kind of a sports part, part of my kind of portfolio. I, you did. For I waited you until did. I got tenure before I yeah. wrote my first paper yeah. on sports. They're just not going to just deal with that uncertainty. On the, on the non-academic side, I would suggest that one of the main reasons it's such a good training ground is that you get these outcome measures, crisp, clean, objective, repeatable daily outcome measures. So you so if so predictions often are greatest interest, you've got a lot of out of sample opportunities to learn here. So for example, a classic study in decision making found that the only forecasters, only professional forecasters who were reliably calibrated and not overconfident are weather forecasters. This is a big study from, you know, 40 years ago. I would strongly, I would conjecture, to use the word for the day, I would conjecture that another domain who uh, are actually calibrated and not overconfident are sports gamblers. Because every day they put, they have skin in the game, but also they get feedback. It's the same thing as weather forecasters. You get objective, reliable feedback 
regularly, and you just don't get that in most domains. And so yeah. in, in sports, you go, okay, go build your model. Fine, you think your model's great? Well, we're going to find out tomorrow, and then you're going to have a chance to refine it, and then we'll find out the next day again. So that kind of repetition just isn't rare, isn't the, often available. The thing I like about what you're saying, Kay, besides the fact it's true, in the olden days, though, if you think about sports betting should even be more calibrated. It's a conjecture. I'll use Shane's words for everybody's word, a conjecture. It should be more calibrated, and here's why. If you're a sports gambler 20 years ago, the outcomes you would see was yes, no. Did I get it right or wrong? But now you should get more refined feedback, which is you're right. I got it wrong, but I didn't get it that wrong. Like yeah. I picked the wrong horse, but you know what? That horse and, based on the and, analytics or, you know what? And, this team didn't win the soccer game, but based on opportunities, right. they could have won the game. So my guess is as the feedback that these professional gamblers are getting is better feedback, they have to be better yeah, calibrated. And, 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 and I mean, I think this links up to what we were talking about with like, you know, uh, within person variation that happens in sports. I think one of the kind of things you you start developing an intuition for when you observe an outcome that differs from your model is that an idiosyncratic kind of outcome or is there some systematic problem which with is your model biggest, which is the biggest issue that's yeah. so hard it's all fun and games until you yeah. start putting your model out there and you yeah. have to decide do i stay with my model or is my model wrong right and oh my gosh i mean you only yeah. you only get better at that with the experience and it's exactly. hard to ever get good exactly at that's it. why i called it like intuition it's almost like the art of statistics as a so you know opposed to this is, this honestly this is something I've learned from working with Rufus over the years. Yeah. So, so we do these football models and football forecasts, but then, uh, you know, Rufus is out there betting it. And you have a weekend where you go like, you know, early on we go one and three. You know, we post our predictions in the Wall Street Journal, and then we go one and three. And I'm like, oh, Rufus, man, is something wrong this year? Is our model? He's like, come on. Just relax. <laughs> you learn it over time. Yeah. Hey, guys, I'm curious. Um, we talked about a lot of sports up front, but we, we didn't talk about some of the kind of lesser, you know, not the big not four. Go- you better not be saying golf big, is lesser because I, I do know, want to talk what, about what, the big what, four. What, you, well, listen, <laughs> what I want to know is this is so weird to me that that we've got the PGA about to happen. We've got the major, fourth yeah, that, major uh, golf you, championship. When you just told me about that, I, it's, the PGA is almost always the no, last always, of the major. Always moved, in August. They, always in August. Yeah, yeah. They moved it to May. It's next. It's not this weekend. It's next weekend. And what's the... Here's, well, let me say okay. two things about it. The reason they moved it is because you guys know they have this FedEx Cup race to the championship, $10 million phony money prize thing at the Sounds end. Sounds like NASCAR, but okay. Yeah. The PGA interferes with that and with the Ryder Cup and everything else. It was too... Comp- the, I see. The golf season, by yeah, the way, yeah. ends in September. It's not a calendar season, really. The FedEx... Remember Tiger Woods won his... the win- Remember Tiger Woods won the year-end championship last year? He won the last tournament of the year, even yeah. though Justin Rose ended up the number one player? That was in, like, September. That's the end of the golf season. Literally, for points, President's Cup, everything. Yeah. The next season starts in, like, October. With the PGA, the Ryder Cup, the President's Cup, these four tournaments that build up to this last one, there was literally guys were playing. I mean, Tiger even said it. He had to play like six consecutive weeks at the end of the season. So they decided to take the PGA out of the end of the season and move it to May. And there was a gap here because the majors went April, June, July, August. So why not just go April, May, June, July? Yeah, but the point that's also the second point I wanted to make is how do you figure Tiger Woods' odds for the PGA? Now, the good news is, let me say the good news. It's at a, by the way, I've played the course that it's at. 
Long Island? Uh, yeah, but I stink, so it's, I'm not diagnostic here. But it's known as probably the hardest public course, Beth, Beth Page, Page Black. Black. So, so this, this is, is brutal. So they just had the, they had it there, I don't know, 12 years ago or so? I think it was it 2002. Was, I think it, it, oh, even longer. So it was a big deal that they had it at this public course. And th- so there are all these stories then about how people for years have gone, and if you want to play, you like sleep in your car. You queue up right. the night before. That's how hard it is to get on this great course, even though it's a public. Is it a muni? Is it even a muni? Yeah. It's a muni. I, you, I just walked on and played. Okay. And uh, but here's the question: Tiger Woods has not played or hit a professional golf shot since you saw him walk off the 18th green of the Masters. He's decided not to play any of the tournaments. He decided he wanted to rest up, work on his, you know, really his core strength, be in the gym more. He's playing obviously some golf and training in between. Do you think this helps him or hurts him? In other words, he will not have played a competitive shot of golf where all of the other top well, players have played two or this, three tournaments minimum. Oh, you're not talking about the move of the PGA to me. You're talking about no, like he just the fact hasn't that he's played not. Since. No, yeah. I he think he's not played. That's my, my view. What? It I think he'll be fine yeah, for him. I think, he I think he's doing a Roger Federer. Yeah. Which is scale back and concentrate on your, on your core I mean, strength. I, I think we can all agree that he probably is, you know, because of his age and everything like that, is... is Less, you know, physically able to maintain peak performance through an entire seat, like a real entire season of golf, like you know the youngins are, and so yeah, I mean, I think this is probably is a fairly wise strategy for him to kind of pick his competition. I, I mean, as far as like exactly what the optimal amount of you know in you know in sort of like tournament experiences as part of I think he's had, I think he's had I don't know in his but, career you think he's had some good tournament experience yeah. I think it's a good, I think it's interesting I think it may be it, we could be we could learn a lot. Yeah. See if he comes out and does terrific. I don't know if well, we're going to be very one, interesting one to chance, look, but I mean this is obviously will be too small a sample of data, but it would be interesting to see for example how he plays the first nine holes, 18 holes of this tournament. It would be interesting to study this from not just him, but from lots of players. Like, we study this in lots of tests. I remember at ETS, one of the questions I always wondered is, are there people that need warm-up for tests? Like, they sit down at the test and they're nervous or they... Oh, wow. And so we actually were able to study people's performance on, like, the first 5, 10, 15 test items compared to the rest of the test. Interesting. turns out, by the way, um, when we move to online testing, it turns out it's racial biased, unfortunately, because people of low socioeconomic and color aren't as used to taking online tests, and they don't perform as well early on in the test. It would be an interesting question to whether Tiger Woods, now back to sports, if you could look at every player playing the PGA and when he hit their last competitive shot, how would they perform in the first nine holes compared to expectation? It would be interesting to know, is there a warm-up effect? And I mean, I, I... Early, kind of in the mid-range of Tiger's career, he was already kind of what was was mostly focusing on the on, on the majors. But he would not always do this sort of turn up. Last year he played like I know, but last year right, he's never yeah. not. Last year his goal was to actually make the Presidents Cup and to actually make this final tour yeah. end championship. He said he played more tournaments last year than he had played in ten or twelve years. Mm-hmm. Last year was he had different <laughs> goals in mind. Gotcha. All right, guys. Before we go to the over under segment, I want to say the good folks at ESPN just distributed their first. Preseason 
NFL FPI oh, rankings. Yay. <laughs> it's just not too wrong for us to do this, right? No, no. It's, no, just candy. it's very right. The reason you want to do it is because FPI is le- legit modeling stuff. So they started out with college football, did some basketball. Now they've got the pro model. So of all the models out there that aren't named Massey Peabody, we like these the best. And they do some they do some things that we just don't do. So number one, Kansas City Chiefs. Number two, Saints. By the way, just, can we just stop with the Saints just for 10 seconds? The best tweet after the Kentucky Derby was, do the Saints get to go to the Super Bowl now? <laughs> <laughs> that was the best. And by the way, it was, might have been by the Saints. If it wasn't yeah. by the Saints, it was by someone affiliate. I thought that was the best that's, tweet. That's yeah. strong. That's so strong the, that was strong. So uh, you just put up this FPI rankings, yeah, yeah. and Kansas City is number one here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With t- only interesting, not only but it's correct, ten point three wins. This is what I, I wanted to point this out because these guys are sophisticated, right? So you yeah. might say if you're gonna if you're gonna project wins for the thirty two NFL teams, what do you expect the team with the highest projected wins to have as a total. By the way, of course, what's interesting about the top two there, just to remind everybody, and by the way, I'm not trying to delegitimize the Patriots' Super Bowl win. How could you? But I'm just saying, if you remember, the Chiefs were one offside away <laughs> from winning the game against the Patriots mm-hmm. and going to the Super Bowl, That's and right. the Saints were one blown call away from going. So one could argue Kansas City, New Orleans, if you want to use priors, should have been the oh Super Bowl last year. You could... How much could have been? How I mean, many could, could have argue been? it? Would, no, no, no. Shane, <laughs> you, you have it. to admit. There were several drives were, to stop Tom Brady and could not because nobody can. There were one, <laughs> there were one non, <laughs> not away from the ball, offsides away is, from winning that oh, game. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, they did stop him that one play. But then yeah. they, they were, it turns out they cheated on that play. They were okay, offsides. So, so, I didn't right, say so it was legitimate. ESPN's top two are the presumed Bradlow Bowl. Yeah. Contestants, yes. Chiefs Saints, Chiefs Saints, Bradlow Bowl. And I'm going, what I love about this ranking yeah. is the Patriots can go into the season being like we're scrappy underdogs yeah. again. Nobody believes well, us. Look, What's their, their forecast? Their their projected totals are higher, so they're ten point five. They're number four in their power rankings with ten and a half because they you know they're the going to send this off of the season. So guys, that's. As much time as we can get to other sports because we have other business to take care of. It's Warden Moneyball's Over Under. Eric Bradlow, glad you're here. Walk us through it, man. So let's start with MLB. Some pretty exciting things. Actually, I want to build off something on we had talked about Bryce Harper and his contracts. Let's start with him. So over under a 250 batting average for Bryce Harper for the season. So just to let everyone know, he's currently batting 236. Last year he batted 249. Uh, in some sense, he was going to be a straight empiricist. He was 319 in 2017, but a 243 in 2016. So two of the last three full seasons, he batted under 250, um, and he's currently batting 236. So I'll go to our baseball expert, Adi <laughs> Weiner. 250 batting average for Bryce Harper, over under. Oh, God. Um, it's it's hard because they shift more on him. He's, you know, he's... Doesn't look to be quite the hitter that he potentially was supposed to have been when, well, when he came up. Well, let's be clear. His projected numbers for the season right now are 37 homers and 115 RBIs. I think we would both take that as a Phillies sure. fan. Right. We certainly would. Yeah, I, I mean, mean it's, it's certainly good. But I think the, the problem is about batting average, right, which is so, the most volatile thing yeah. in all of, what? of all of baseball. Um, but I'm going to just go over. I think... Uh, the 250 is on the low side of his of his uh, projection from the beginning of the year, so I'm going over. Okay, uh, K Batsy. 
We'll go to K next. Uh, I'm going to go under. Just I'm looking at the few numbers on the page, and they All look right. low to me. So I'm going to go under. Always a good bet. I'm going to go. go I'm going to go under. Uh, I think. Um, I, I mean, what Audie's talking about there. The, sh- the shift is very effective against him, and he's just not. He's going to get walked a lot. His his OBP is probably going to be 400. Fine. Yeah, yeah, he'll probably be 400 OBP, but I, I could imagine him being less than 250 batting average. And, and I'm going to go over. So we have two overs and uh, two unders here. All right, let's stay with baseball for a little bit. This is an interesting one. Point five, the number of days the Astros won't be in first place. So they're three games up on the Mariners, three and a half on the Rangers, four and a half on the Angels, and five and a half on the A's. Actually, it's a very competitive division. But I'm saying, will there ever be a day this season that they won't be in first place? We'll go to Shane Jensen. I'm going to take the under. I think they're uh, going to be place first for, for here on in. Yep. Okay, Cade Massey. That's shocking to me. So I, I haven't paid enough attention to know how these standings move around, but that seems so unlikely to me. I've got to go. I've got to go over. But that's an interesting, provocative question. Yeah. So I think that they're they're a three game lead, but they're better than a three game lead in terms of their talent over the rest of the division. And I do understand variability. They could have a stretch. They go four and six, three and seven. But I'm going the. Uh, under. I think they will be in first place every day of the season. Don't do me, Adi. Come on now. I'm going to quote the arc sign law distribution. Uh, when you have two teams vying with, with, uh, with <laughs> wins and losses or bets and ballots, uh, the distribution on the percentage of time that one team has the lead for the is uh, has an arc sign shape. It looks like a U. Yeah. So um, one team often is ahead for the entire time. So I'm going under. Oh, science. Dang. Wow. Can't argue with the Arkstein, man. <laughs> but, you know, it's only a probability. So. All right. Well, those are Y'all got a chance. <laughs> Let's move off baseball a little bit. Obviously, big thing, a lot going on in the NBA right now. Let's, you guys, I know, maybe so had an over. Real quickly, yeah, that, that explains why that there are so few change of, possess, change of, change winning, of leads. Yep. Yeah, change of leads in basketball. That's right. Less than you, you would into it. Got it. Okay. All right. So let's go on to the NBA. Lots going on in the NBA. Let's start with the Sixers Raptors. So over under six and a half games for the series. I'll start since. Just to sh- shift it around. I'm going to take the over. I think this is going to Game 7. I think the Sixers will somehow find a way to re- redeem themselves for that ridiculously embarrassing Game 5 loss. I think the Sixers win. I think Sixers-Raptors goes to 7. We'll go to Adi Weiner. Oh, God. Your heart versus your head. Um <laughs> yeah, because the better team is the Raptors. They were the better, better in the regular right. season. But, but the, we are we are coming home, yep. and that makes, I think, them the better team or the better probability. Um, Although the Raptors, just, you know, are the favorite in the game by one and a half in, points. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going I'm to go over. I'm going to over. I'm going to agree seven. with. I'm gonna, we're going to game seven. I'm agreeing okay, with Bradley. Shane Jensen. I'm so, taking hey, the. Uh, so, by the way, I can't have this information and not share it because that's not fair. Maddie tells me that the Raptors are two point favorites tonight. Okay, I thought it was one and a half, one and a half, two. That's what I said, one and a half. But Shane? Uh, I'm going under. The Sixers look so defeated and lost last night. I do not think they recover. Um, I think they lose game six. I'm going under also. Uh, The Raptors close them out despite the Sixers having the potential. They just don't have it together. And just maybe the last one for today, let's do the same for Rockets and Golden State. They're actually more easy, over under six and a half. But, of course, it's harder. They're sitting at 2-2, not Mm -hmm. 3-2. So I'll go to you, Shane. I don't think you'd pick one first. Rockets, Golden State, to go to Game 7. I'll take the over on that one. I think it does go to Game 7. I think they uh, continue to hold home court um, until the end. At, oh, until the end. So you think the Rockets have a chance in Game 7? 
Yeah, it, Golden State's at home in Game Seven. They are. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying. You said until the. Oh, you said until through the. the end. No, no, oh, you, through, oh, yeah, through, through, the end. through the end. Through the end. Through the end. Sorry. So you yeah. like Rockets? You like sorry, Golden State four three. Yes, I do. Okay, so hey, do I. I'm going over as well, though. I'm not sure that's. Comp- that's. I think there's a incompatibility between my answers to these two questions. But I'm going over. Okay. Yeah, me too. I'm also going over. And I'm going over as well. All right. I'm going to think that's a game we gotta seven. got to force them. All agree. Well, it's a fun time, man. It's a fun time with these with the playoffs. I urge people to not ignore the NHL. There's some good stuff going on over there as well as we move into the conference finals. But that for this week is our show, Two Hours of Wharton Moneyball. We do it every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. Many thanks to the whole crew here on the ha- on behalf of Eric, Adi, Shane. It's been a good time. Matty D, our boss man, producer, appreciate it. Our associate producer, in-house, on the board, Dion Simpkins. Always a pleasure, Dion. Glad to have you around. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.